Welcome. Hello, everyone. Today's Wednesday Dhamma Q&A. Hello, everyone. People waiting. I appreciate that. You can think of this like a classroom. We've all come to learn. And so you're waiting patiently for the teacher to arrive. In the Vinaya, for monks, this is among monks, but lay people should keep it in mind as well. When your teacher enters the room, you have to stand up. So there's that level of respect. You, you, you get there first and you wait. And then when the teacher comes into the room, as soon as they enter, when my teacher, and when my preceptor entered the room every time, I would try, try unless it was really inconvenient, I would stand up, no matter what. Such a, a good feeling to do that. And it, it wasn't a very common thing where I was, so I think it looked, looked odd sometimes. But it's a good feeling. So thank you for your your patience and your respect. Respect for the Dhamma really. It's not really about the person. It's not it, it's not at all about the person. I certainly wouldn't want people to worship me or you know, focus anything on me. That's the whole reason, as I've said, I don't put my face here. In the Buddhist time they would have a fan in front of their face when they taught. For that explicit purpose, it's not about me. It's not about the person. It's respect for the Dhamma. In the time, in in the in the Vinaya, even when a junior monk. See, in the Vinaya, we have rules of seniority. Doesn't matter whether you're an arahant or or the best teacher in the world. If you're junior, you sit on a lower seat. And the highest seat, the best seat, the front seat is always reserved for the senior monk, even if they're not a very good monk. Well, as long as they're an okay monk. If they're very corrupt, they shouldn't get a seat at all. But as long as they're not a terrible monk, they, they're they the senior. There's no merit. It's not about merit. But when a junior monk, even if they were ordained that day, when they've been invited to teach, and of course they have to be invited by the senior monks first, but when they're invited to teach, they sit on a higher, they have to sit on a higher seat. They can't sit on a lower seat. They have a respect for the Dhamma. So this is a respect for the teaching. This is why it's important for us to all come here with a proper attitude, to have a formal layout, that's uh, why we keep the chatting to a minimum at the beginning here. We, we talk, but then at some point we're just going to delete everything that's not a question to keep the format formal, orderly, focused, respectful. That's why I remind people when you do ask questions, um, do your best to use proper grammar and punctuation, spelling. Try your best to answer, ask the questions respectfully.
and mindfully. All this talk about respect and stuff is good, but much better and much more important is our paying respect through practice. The Buddha said, Yoko, Yoko, Pikuwa, Pikuniwa, Upasakova, Upasikava, Dhammanu, Dhammapatipanu. Whichever Whatever monk, male monk, female monk, or lay person, female or male, practices the Dhamma, that person pays the highest respect. So that's our focus. Not that respect is our focus. But practice is our focus. And the Buddha basically saying that you don't need to be concerned with your behavior. Really, the great thing, the wonderful thing about mindfulness is you don't have to be worried about anything else. Ethics, morality, kindness, generosity, all these things come from a pure heart. The pure heart comes from a clear mind, clear vision, which comes from seeing, comes from looking, comes from remembering, comes from sati. All right, so I'm here to answer questions. Chris is here with me to ask the questions. I think it's about time to begin, so I'm going to ask that you cease in the chat. No more chatting. From now on, the chat box is only for questions, and I instruct Chris to delete anything that's not a question. Ready to begin. Ready to begin. What should we note when we feel lost or off track in meditation? Blurriness, fogginess, or is this too conceptual? Yeah, you can note dull is a common one, even just feeling. Feeling is something you can apply to a lot of things. But it really, the, the words are not that important. You could even say lost or off track. They're all they're all going to be conceptual. The point is that they point to and focus your attention on the feeling. So the words are not that important. Are moving faded lights that move around in the vision whilst meditating nimitta? They are moving faded lights. Don't 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 get hung up on buzzwords. Yes, they are nimitta, but that's just a buzzword. They are what they are. Lights are lights. You want to know what they are? They're impermanent, suffering, and non-self. 
that's what they are. You know, note to yourself, seeing, seeing until they go away. Maybe because of language, Italian. I can't really grasp the difference between Vedana and the first two hindrances. Is there a way to discern precisely eating pizza, its pleasure or liking, and nausea? Well, that might be simply because they always come to, or they, they at that moment come together. But you can experience a pleasant feeling without liking, without craving for it. It's possible. Most of our pleasant feelings are accompanied by liking. That's just the way the way it is. It's why craving is so hard to get rid of because it's pleasant. But they are different aspects of the same experience, and you can like something that is not pleasant. You can have a, a, a neutral feeling and still like something. So they are separate. The liking is separate from the the happy feeling, the pleasant feeling. It doesn't really matter if you are, if you know if you recognize it as something pleasant, say pleasant or happy. If you like it, say liking, liking. And the same with disliking. Now, disliking always comes with a painful feeling. That's just its nature. But you can have a painful feeling without the disliking. If you feel pain in the body, you don't necessarily have to dislike it. So you can note pain and pain. But if you dislike anything, say disliking, disliking. But Vedana is just the sensations of pain, pleasure, calm. The first two hindrances are whether you like or dislike. I am on medication for anxiety. I would like to go off my medication but I have had trouble with anxiety relapses in the past. Would I find more success staying off my meds through meditation? Yes, but through meditation is the key. It's not as easy as it sounds. Through meditation, it doesn't just mean walking and sitting. For someone who is in an, uh, a situation where they are they need medication for anxiety, I mean, that's fairly... It can be fairly extreme. I mean, I think a lot of us are critical of how frequently someone with anxiety will be put on medication when perhaps it's not that extreme. But uh, in cases where it's extreme, and especially once you've gotten on it and it becomes a crutch and you become more or less addicted to it, it can be very hard to go off of it. Now, two things. One, I would say do it with a teacher. Um, and two... Don't look at anxiety relapses as any problem. Just because you're anxious doesn't mean there's a problem. And that's really a, a key to overcoming anxiety, among many other things. Anxiety is just anxiety. And when you can finally see that, or gradually see that, your anxiety becomes not a problem, but an experience. So absolutely, when you go off your medication, you're going to feel anxious. You might even panic. You might even faint. It can cripple you for work. I mean, I think a big uh, argument people have for taking medication is they can't function without it. And that 
I don't have anything to say about. I mean, it's I have to acknowledge, you have to acknowledge that if you need something to function and and in a practical worldly sense, well, what can you say about that? But in a more philosophical or or theoretical or ultimate sense, in an ultimate sense, it doesn't matter whether you lose your job or you know, live on the streets or so on. Most important is to be mindful, and you can't really do that when you're addicted to medication. <laughs> so, I mean, practically speaking, you don't want to lose your job, but uh, insofar as you can come to face the anxiety, that's the quality of, that's the nature of mindfulness, is to face things. Now, I've done some videos on anxiety, and, and one thing about it that's important is to be able really with all as as with all other problems is to be able to separate it into what's actually there because then you see that there is no problem there's just experiences there's not just the anxiety there's also the physical consequences of being anxious which are tension and shaking and heart beating and butterflies in your stomach lots of sensations and none of that is anxiety it can last after the anxiety is gone the anxiety triggers it and they, they, the feeling persists. Now, the problem is that the feeling evokes anxiety. You become anxious about that, and it, it reinforces. At the same time, there's all the thoughts of what is making you anxious, and that triggers more anxiety, and so it becomes a feedback loop and constantly being fed by all of this. If you can break it up and note all these things, face them, you, you break the chain. But uh, so two things, go with the teacher and don't think of anxiety as a problem. That's really a change of perspective that has to come about. I've been meditating a lot lately and at night I get a lot of nightmares, terror attacks. Is this related? It can be in the beginning. You, in meditation, you stop to some extent in indulging in a lot of frivolous activities that distract your mind and keep your mind preoccupied. So a lot of a lot of the stuff we hold on to comes to the fore. And people can be very a lot of craving will arise. Intense desire will come up and a lot of uh, negative fear and anger states will come up. It's just sorting it all out in the beginning. It's kind of like stirring up the pot. I mean, not really. It's all there. It's just you're no longer distracting yourself. When you get so distracted with other things like entertainment and frivolous worldly pursuits, it, it makes you too tired to have things like nightmares or so on. So it's just a beginner sort of thing. How prepared should I be to attend the first at-home session? I have been trying to do 15-minute sitting and walking sessions, and I've read the booklet. That's great. You don't have to be prepared at all. The first session, I often just tell people what to do because they haven't done it. And I say, once you do this for a week, we'll get started. Uh, and that's fine. I don't, there's no expectation otherwise. But if you want to avoid that first meeting or, or bypass it, you can already start. You have to do one week at least one hour of meditation a day, half walking and half sitting, that means total. So if 
you do 15 minutes walking, 15 minutes sitting twice a day, you've done done enough. But you have to do that every day for a week. And the expectation is that you do that every day through the course. The second expectation is that you are prepared to work up to two hours a day of meditation by the end of the course. That's many weeks later. But you have to be prepared. You, you can't have a busy schedule that doesn't let you do that, for example. You have to keep the five precepts, so that's something absolutely everyone should prepare. You should be doing that anyway. And you have to read the booklet, and that's it. If anyone's interested in doing the at-home course, that person with anxiety on the medication, if you ever want to do the at-home course, might be a good way to get off the medication. Not that I can encourage you or direct you to do that because that would be apparently illegal and cause me lots of legal issues but theoretically if you work something out with your doctor be something to consider it's all free we don't charge for anything so don't worry about that Is it normal for someone to not get any kind of benefit from meditation after years? Samatha or Vipassana. I learned how life is impermanent, but I don't feel no different. It's not normal. Not at all. I don't know if you have a teacher or if you're practicing this technique. But if you haven't, I recommend reading the booklet and doing an at-home course if you're interested. We can see what we can do about that. It is a problem that people expect a lot out of meditation and expect certain things that... See, the problem is the results are nothing you've ever experienced before, so they can't be something you're even conceptually able to to conceptualize. They are new. Meditation should surprise you. The results should truly be something you never really were able to conceive of. So, if that's any help. Often people are expecting things that they won't get. And they often miss the results. Uh, there's one video I did that I think addresses this idea. I think it's called Experience of Reality. This is a fairly lofty, lofty title for something fairly mundane, but I recommend watching that video. Pretty sure that's what it's called. You often say that noting the rising and fall of the abdomen is for beginners. What do experienced meditators focus on when starting a meditation session? I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not cognizant of having often said that. Um, so it may be that there's a bit of a disconnect there. I would. I don't know if I often say. I think I have said. Let, let me put aside what's happened in the past. Okay, maybe I said something that's actually not true, but or not what I would say now. Let's. What, what would I say now? The rising and falling, noting rising falling is a basic meditation exercise. It's the beginning, certainly, and there are more complicated practices, complex practices. But they're all based on on watching the stomach rising and falling. So, sorry to disappoint if you were looking for some alternative. 
That's the basis of all of our techniques in sitting meditation. Now, there are other things you can note, of course, but I really encourage people to try to take that as their basic object. It makes my job easier, and it certainly is a very useful meditation object. It's, it's uncomfortable. There's a lot of often a desire to find an alternative simply because of how uncomfortable it is to focus on the stomach. It, it appears to be a poor choice of objects. And that's what this video I was just mentioning addresses. It's for that specific purpose. So I'd recommend watching that video. Um, but uh, advanced med experienced meditators still focus on the stomach rising. But there's other objects. It's just I don't like giving them out because, of course, then everyone's going to just start doing them on their own. But it's really something you should learn properly f during a meditation course. So... If you're interested, you can do the at-home course. The at-home course is as much about learning the technique as it is about actually meditating. Because you're not doing intensive practice, but you're learning how to practice. So it's a great precursor to some actual intensive meditation practice. If you want to learn what we do in this tradition. And some people who do the at-home course do a lot more than the minimum, so then it becomes really powerful. They'll do four or five hours a day. It's not common, but some people who especially are experienced will do more than the required, and if they have the time and so on. But that's certainly not expected. I find it very hard to stay on the breath. Is it more important to stay on it or to keep coming back to it? I'm not sure if you mean beyond, stay on the stomach rising and falling, but we don't do anapanasati focusing on the breath. Or we do, but it's a different sort of anapanasati, so it's focused on the stomach. If you mean the stomach, um, I don't think you do. I would recommend reading the booklet. If you have read the booklet, maybe rephrase your question based on what's in the booklet. I can't answer questions about other techniques. Besides noting experience, is there anything I can do to encourage insight? I had a deep insight experience long ago and have not had another since. I wonder if it will ever happen again. Insight is not really what we're looking for. It's misleading, you know, all this talk about Insight, vipassana is even translated sometimes as insight, and I don't think it should be. But apart from that, there's something called the jnanas, which are knowledge. So we think, oh, I'm going to have this epiphany or something. It's not really like that. Right view, seeing clearly. If you contemplate what this means, it, it, it means your perspective on things. That's what we're aiming for. The ultimate goal is when the mind completely releases, completely lets go of everything. It has no connection. It just unplugs, basically. That's what you should be striving for. Well, that, that's what you should be thinking of as the ultimate. And that doesn't come from any insight, per se. It comes from perfect clarity of vision seeing things just as they are and that's really an experiential 
It's an experience. You'll start to have this. It, it, it creeps up on you through the, the practice where you're able to suddenly see things arising and ceasing without any reaction to them. Whereas before you might react to things, now you find your, yourself uh, like um, dis descending into a more and more refined, subtle, objective, pure experience of things until you get to the point where you're 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 aware of everything moment after moment simply as it is without any judgment or reaction when you get to that point it it builds it, it's like it yeah like a like um like rubbing two sticks together and it heats up and heats up until there's ignition and that ignition isn't an insight, it's a moment of clarity. It's the moment where the mind just lets go. Sees, uh, sees, not, not thinks, but sees things just as they are. And lets go. And then there's this experience of cessation where there's no arising. So that didn't really answer your question, but it's sort of dealing with this idea of experiences of insight. It's not really what this practice is about. If You can have those during the practice, but they're not really the goal. It may very well be that that experience changed your life and helped you lead you here, but we're kind of going beyond that, I guess. You don't need that experience anymore. If you want it again, then you have to say wanting, wanting. Um, and and as far as encouraging results, it's very it's problematic and often deleterious, um, antithetical to progress because it's craving, it's ego because it's trying to control, trying to evoke, it's purposeful, uh, trying to be in charge, you know. And that's not how it happens. You can't evoke the evoking comes from the observing so besides noting experience there's nothing you can do I mean there are lots of things you can do to support your practice and absolutely you should do all of those so we want to just step back from the actual terminology that you used just about helping your practice well there's lots of things ethics be ethical in your speech, in your actions, in your thoughts. Uh, be generous with your actions, speech, and thoughts. Uh, be studious in terms of studying and approaching teachers, asking questions like this. I hope no one's ever discouraged by my answers and says, oh boy, I wish I hadn't asked that. I'm running away now. Asking questions is always good, even if the answer is just to say the answers can be very can be somewhat critical, and I hope that doesn't turn people off. But uh, it's part of a teacher's job. Answers are sometimes about redirecting, so doesn't mean the the question was a bad question. It's important that you ask. Of course, if you don't like the answer, go somewhere else. So don't waste your time on this guy who answers in a way that you don't agree with. Things like that, beyond beyond noting experience, there's 
Everything else is secondary. But don't focus, don't obsess, don't focus on trying to encourage anything. Do your work. Is it a bad sign to feel fear during meditation? Recently I've discovered that when I meditate, I frequently feel fear and see scary images and have to frequently open my eyes. Should I continue? There are no bad signs. That's a whole part of what mindfulness means. Mindfulness is about taking everything as it is without interpretation, as good, bad, me, mine, or any of that. It is what it is. When you feel fear, that's a feeling. You say to yourself, afraid. I'm not sure if you've read the booklet. If you haven't, I recommend doing that because it helps say things like, when you feel fear, not afraid, afraid. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you should continue, but you should, may, if you haven't done it the way I just explained, try to do it that way. Try to read the booklet. I recommend that you do it that way. That's what I teach. If you do it a different way, well, I can't help too much. You have to find someone who teaches the way you practice. How to note when there are difficulties with breathing. It's an asthma. Note the feeling. Note the tension and note any mental states associated. There can be anxiety associated with it sometimes. But you don't need to breathe much. I mean, you can put your hand on your stomach if you can't feel it very much. But certainly note all the as all the feelings associated with asthma. There will be a lot of things you can note, most likely in physical and mental. Disliking of it, panic, anxiety, all that. In the booklet, you indicate to send the mind to the object and make the note at the location of the experience. Well, it's clear what to do for the body, first foundation. What about the other three? So they don't really have a, a, a location. The point of that sentence, which is, maybe, I don't know, it's... The point of the sentence is to... It, it, it's, it's not quite clear the way I meant it to be, I think. But what I meant was, don't keep... Don't keep the mind separate from the object. Because... What can happen with a mantra is you just repeat it mindlessly. And that's the point. That's what not to do. The The noting should be related to your experience. You experience something and you note based on that. So it's connected with the experience. Now with a body, of course, that's going to be in the body, with the stomach, with the foot. But with thoughts, thoughts don't have a location. Thoughts are, are in the mind. So then you just note with the thought which means you don't send the mind to the brain, to the head. It, it's nothing to do. You, you actually have no um, no relationship with space, no correlation with any space. But you still send it to the thought in a way. You say it with the thought. There's the thought, and that thought doesn't have physical space. 
but it has a mental I mean it's in the mind so so be be with the mind at that time don't go to the body to some specific spot go instead to the mind that's a good question and the book I guess is not quite clear as clear as it should be I find it easy to hold my breath mindfully I think it helps my meditation experience it may be unconventional, but do you advocate against it? How do you think it helps your meditation experience? We're not looking to help the meditation experience. or Let me put it to you this way. If you find it easy to hold your breath mindfully, that's probably a bad idea, simply because you find it easy. It's much more challenging to stop trying to control things. Uh, but in the long term it's much more rewarding it's much more challenging because we're used to and comfortable with being in control we're not very comfortable with react with uh, adapting being flexible and that's why we don't do things like hold our breath deepen the breath shorten the breath anything like that we observe the breath as it is and that's quite a challenge because our mind immediately wants to control in many different ways like holding our breath So sorry, but yep, don't do that. I am 20 years old and I admit I am embarrassed by my practice for some reason. I find it very difficult to be mindful around others. Is it best to practice in seclusion or to get out of my comfort zone? I guess both. Practice in seclusion, but also get out of your comfort zone I mean you don't have to get out of it you just have to recognize when you're not in it so when you are embarrassed that should be an object of meditation worried or disliking or afraid With my practice, I have found my thoughts to become clearer, lighter, and less complex. Is this a sign of progress? I think so. But don't obsess about progress because you might find it it's a bumpy road and our minds are complicated and we have lots of bad habits potentially that are going to crop up. Crop up are going to... Is that an expression? Crop up, yeah. Crop up like weeds, I guess. Um, so focus much more on your practice, which is great. It's reassuring, but you don't need reassurance. Just keep doing it. I mean, in the beginning, reassurance can be very valuable, but you have to try to wean yourself off that need to where you're just doing it because it's right, because it's clear, because the practice of having a, a clear mind is valuable. And you know that it's valuable, and you know that it can't lead to anything but good. Because our minds are complicated and it's easy to trick yourself. Oh no, I'm having a bad day. What's wrong? My meditation is useless. Is it the job of the meditator to see the cause of the object being attended by the mind or to see why the mind is attending it? Is this even a duality?
I don't know if you read the booklet or not. <laughs> Sorry, it's it's too. I think you're too complicated. You're making it. You're, you're thinking too much. Say to yourself, thinking or doubting or so on. It's the job of the meditator to note things. It seems very mindless, but the whole point is to simplify. Meditator's job is purposefully, incredibly, ultimately as simple as it can possibly get. And the complexity of our minds is what becomes the object. And you start to parse, you start to pare away at it. I feel like I have missed out on many things in life. This feeling overwhelms me. Does this make my progress harder? I am full of embitterment. No, those things become the object of your meditation. That feeling, that disliking, bitter feeling. Stop letting it overwhelm you. Start focusing on it as your object. Face it. Use it. If you haven't read the booklet, go ahead and read that. If you're interested in doing an at-home meditation course, I recommend that for anyone who's interested. And you can learn how to face it. See, it's the feeling that's the problem, not that you've missed out on many things. Whatever happened to you in the past, that happening is, is nothing, it's gone, it's past. What you're left with is this feeling that you keep perpetuating and augmenting and reinforcing. And we change that by uh, by facing it. In a Christian background, I developed the habit to refrain impulses with guilt, hate, and fear, to which I passively submit in a painful knot of emotion. How would you note? I see disliking of the liking. So if there's, if there's disliking, you note disliking. If there's liking, you note liking. But you're, you're, it's, it's intuitive there, yes. Intuitive. You're very insightful. I don't know what the word is, but that's very insightful of you to say that. It shows that you're seeing... Clearly, I mean, it's a common thing to see that, oh dear, it's not just my desire, it's the fact that I hate myself for desire. I feel guilty about desire. So you have to deal with it on, on those two, not exactly levels, but it's a complicated habit. Your habit is complex, where you like things and then you hate yourself for them, right? So there's liking and then there's disliking. So it's not exactly both of them together. It's actually one after the other, if you think about it. In meditation, you just you have to note everything anyway, so just note whatever you can, when you can. You're, you're, you're deconstructing your habits. And you can pick, out, pick away. It's like, it's like a knot. When you have a big clump of rope, you don't have to say, I have to pull here. You actually have to pull in lots of different places until you can untie the knot. So don't worry about one thing or another. Note, note whatever you can. And just be patient. Don't have expectations like it's going to sort itself out. It will. That's the point, is it will sort itself out. Don't focus on that. It's like knots, you know, they're not... So at one point, you're so focused on pulling, 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 and at one point, it just, poof, the knot's gone, and it was never even there.
Does being in nature have an effect on meditation? If you feel so, then what's the difference between being in a rural setting versus being in a more populated urban setting? Well, it depends what you mean by meditation. The answer generally is yes. It's a it's a supportive condition. I think there's two things. One, our psyche is much more attuned to nature than it is to the harsh uh, urban setting with its sights and sounds and smells and tastes that are jarring. And so that can make it challenging to practice. Now, it's a fairly superficial challenge. It's not something that you have to worry about. In Samatha meditation, if your goal is tranquility, which ours is not, but if your goal is mundane tranquility, you apparently really do need a quiet, secluded place, free from any sensual distractions. But with the practice we do, that's not really necessary. It's a fairly superficial problem that you quickly learn to overcome. But the other part of the equation is that being in, sol in nature means quite often being in solitude. Now, it doesn't always, and not in all ways. And being in nature means having lots of company with mosquitoes and ants and bugs that can really distract you in other ways. So that's not actually a good thing, but if you have a proper setup in nature, it can be quite secluded. And so you're free from a lot of the troubles and cares and worries of the, the urban society. And that's, I think, much more important. But it can be accomplished in an urban setting. And the point, and I think the Buddha made this point, that uh, it's not really about being in city or in the country. It's about how you practice, how you set your mind, how you set up your living When I do Vipassana meditation, my head and neck start shaking at times. Is this normal? Normal isn't the point, because the point is to see impermanence. And so we actually welcome abnormal experiences. They shock us, they surprise us. And eventually we, we, we become attuned to the unpredictable nature of life. It's a very important insight. So don't be concerned that something might not be normal. It's going to be a lot of abnormality in the practice. Dangerous is something that people might be better asking instead of normal. And the answer is usually no. Though there are some things that could be dangerous, mostly with how you set the mind. If you start noting what you want to happen instead of what is happening, for example, that can be dangerous. But shaking and so on is not dangerous. Just say shaking, shaking. If it doesn't stop, you can just tell it to stop. That often helps. Because sometimes there's a subtle mental trigger that you're not really aware of. So if you tell yourself to stop, if you just say stop in your mind, that can sometimes make it stop. Things like rocking or shaking. Can I take the at-home course if I'm on medication for psychosis? I am stable, and I'm meditating for some time already. Hmm. 
Sure, we could try it. I don't guarantee great results, but uh, maybe we could talk about what sort of medication you're on, what sort of condition you have. I, mean, I don't know that the medication stops you from facing your experiences, but that's the whole point, is you have to somehow be able to face your problems. I try to teach you how to do that. So that pretty much necessitates the eventuality of giving up your medication so you can actually face the things that you think or feel or are unable to face at the moment. But but I mean, what I was going to say is you often think you just never could face and it would just be impossible to face. You do have to change that a little bit so where you are able to understand or able to see that you can face things. I don't know, maybe some people can't, absolutely, but then we just acknowledge that there's a limit to the practice. But I think, yeah, with the at-home course, I'm okay with, with that. See how it goes. Related. Can Vipassana make problems like psychosis more pronounced in the beginning? And will it be eventually cured if I just stick with it? It doesn't make them more pronounced. Um, but a lot of things to do with meditation cause it to be more pronounced. As I said earlier, with not avoiding the problem, with uh, not trying to repress it, trying to uh, defend against it. I mean, these are very powerful feelings and we have ignored, neglected facing them for so long they can become very powerful. But that's a power that they have. It's not something that is created by the meditation. It's just meditation is about facing something that we're not very good at doing and when you start to face things, instead of finding ways to avoid them, they can be very powerful, very scary, challenging. So just be clear about that's the final goal, that's what we're aiming at. Now the thing about psychoses, now I think there are, there are, there are a multitude, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are a multitude of different things called psychosis. So it does to some extent depend uh does somewhat uh, depends on on what sort of psychosis you have but some aspects of it i think will never be cured so you have to be clear what we're trying to cure what we're trying to cure is reactions and often people feel like the reactions are part of the experience and they're not you have to react to the experience you don't have to, but that's how a reaction happens. And the idea is that you don't have to. You can find a new way to react. And that can take a long time to change. I don't know if it's possible for everyone. For some people it might not be possible. But I don't think it's a binary. You may get better. And I would, I would argue that anyone who undertakes, even if they do have psychosis of some sort, they undertake to be mindful properly, they will get better. So just
just can't say how much better in this life. That's not a problem. You just do what you can. It's for not most of us are not going to become enlightened in this life. It's not something to be discouraged by. Most of us are practicing to eventually become enlightened. Some of us it might take till the next Buddha to become enlightened. Some of us might not become enlightened then. It's just about following the right way, not about when you're going to reach the goal. As a beginner, should I try to explain the practice or Dhamma as I understand them if I'm asked or criticized? Does it matter if I think the other person may be less than receptive? You don't have any duty to do that. And I think people often get caught up in the in early times with doing that. So it's important to nip that in the bud and realize that you don't have any duty. Um, in the long term, as you get more comfortable, you have to learn how to interact with people. And it, I'd say it rarely involves explaining practice or dhamma to them. I'd say it much more tells them, it much more involves telling people about your practice in in the sense of letting them know wh why you are the way you are. Hey, why aren't you so exciting anymore? That sort of thing. Why don't you play the guitar anymore? Why don't you dance and sing and frolic and enjoy things like everybody else? Why don't you drink alcohol? Why don't you hunt or fish or any of those things? And it involves being uh, mindful, just being, you know. It involves being very normal, very ordinary, much more normal and ordinary than everyone else in some ways. You stop reacting. That's what your duty is. The only reason why you might explain practice or dhamma is if someone asks you to explain practice or dhamma. I had people when I first came back from my course who wanted to learn the meditation, and I actually taught them how to meditate. And it was really, really productive, really fruitful, so I definitely recommend that. If anyone says to you, hey, could you teach me how to meditate, go for it, go all the way. You'd be surprised. I had two, one person... I had other, a few people, but one person who, who did, did this, and I had done a little bit of learning how to teach at the time, but not much. And I led him through an almost complete course. And he's now a teacher of meditation. He doesn't follow me anymore, but uh, he, he's a teacher. He teaches meditation. He's a layperson, but he teaches meditation in this tradition, and he's very devoted to it. So don't 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 be concerned about that. But don't just go teaching people unless they ask you. How long do some pleasures take to uncondition the mind from, such as unhealthy foods or keeping the mind stimulated via random activities on a daily basis? Goal being less activity in the mind? It can take a long time. It can take lifetimes. It shouldn't be your focus. Your focus should be on seeing how craving is the cause of suffering, seeing how your pleasures cause you suffering. Just focus on that. Focus on seeing. Don't focus on removing, so unconditioning the mind. That's not the way it works. 
You're just you're describing results. Focus on the practice. The practice is looking, and it's not e so. It's not even seeing that craving is the cause of suffering, because that's also the result. Focus on looking and looking clearly. Focus on cleansing the doors of perception. Just that. You'll see whatever's there, and when you see the truth, it will set you free. Why do we note sad, happy, like I am sad, happy? After reading the Anatalakana Sutta, I've tried to practice saying more like sadness, happiness, and a great flow of clarity and detachment arose. Yeah, that's generally a temporary thing. You'll find that anytime you, you change words, and it has more to do with the newness of it, because when something's new, we're excited about it. After a while, you'll probably find that it didn't help as much in the long term as you think it does. The Buddha even said to say things like, I am sad, I am happy. The emphasis isn't on the I am, and in English we don't, we don't need to. We can just say sad, sad, or happy, happy. There's no problem with that. It's not a big deal that it might seem to be. It's just conventional, it's the way language works. In fact, it is true. I am the one who feels happy. Not, I'm not noting your happiness or your sadness. So it localizes it. So it's actually a positive thing. It's kind of obvious that it's I'm the one who's happy. But it has nothing to do with I, as in that what is happy as an I, as a self, as a soul. It's just conventional language and it's all conceptual, but it's meant to focus your attention on the ultimate reality which is sadness or happiness. And you can say sadness, happiness. That's perfectly valid as well. Just don't go looking for tricks like that or anything. It's not what you should be focused on. And when you do feel clarity and detachment, you have to note that as well. If you like it, also note that. What am I supposed to do when flies are bothering me in my house? Say to yourself, bothered, bothered. They're not bothering you, you're getting bothered by them. Disliking might be one. If you want an answer with how to deal with flies, you can find a way to catch them humanely. There are humane fly traps, and then put them outside. It's a good occupation, something to keep people busy. Put the flies outside. Try and do it mindfully. It's good to do with mosquitoes as well. One by one by one. I find myself full of anger most of the time. This results in painful headaches. If I manage to get into a peaceful state, the anger simply arises again quickly. How can I help stop this? So you manage to get into a peaceful state tells me that you want to be in the peaceful state. You have to address that, wanting to be in the peaceful state, because that will make you more angry and more afraid of the anger. It will perpetuate and reinforce it. It will make it harder for you to deal with anything that might evoke anger, like an un unpleasant state. When anger arises... How can I stop this is, again, uh, those are um, 
I mean, those are, what's the word? The indicator words to me that, that you want it to go away. And that's just creating, it's just, again, it's clear. Of course, you're full of anger all the time, so you want to get rid of things. And it's not, it's normal. I mean, this is the way people are. There's lots of people like that. Um, it's not an uncommon thing, but anger has to be your object. If you're full of anger most of the time, then most of the time you should be noting angry, angry. Not trying to make it go away. Trying to see it more clearly. Because when you see it more clearly, you just won't get angry as much. Painful headaches is another one. Headaches are not actually... I mean, when you say painful, the implication is not only that they're painful, because of course a headache is by definition painful. But when you say painful it indicates to me that you don't like them, which is, of course, every, no one likes headaches, but that's the point. The point is to focus on either the pain or the disliking and be able to separate so that you can experience the headache without disliking, because they are two different things. As you become more f comfortable, more familiar, more familiar with the headache, there will be less disliking of it. So try and just say aching, aching, or pain, pain, until it goes away. Don't know if you've read the booklet. It sounds like you might not have, but even if you have, uh, well, if you haven't, go ahead and read it. If you have, you could try doing an at-home meditation course. Maybe that would help. If you feel aversion to formal walking and sitting practice, should you just try and note during regular life until you organically move back toward walking and sitting meditation? Or force yourself. You shouldn't really do either. Um, you should note the disliking, and it's actually pretty easy. So if you note the disliking, and if you're sincere about it, you should find that you suddenly don't have the problem with walking and sitting. In fact, you should do it, but it shouldn't be forcing. Any time you feel like you're you don't want to be walking, you don't want to be sitting, you should note that. And of course, just start walking again, or start or keep sitting. You know. Disliking something is an object of meditation. I think we're on to the second tier of questions, Bonte, yeah, and right. pretty close if to the end of time. If there are no more first tier questions, which means the ones people need answers to, we'll stop it there. So you can all talk again. Sadhu, everyone say sadhu. Sadhu means it is good, maybe just literally good, but what it means here is, well, that was good. Thank you all. Good group. Very good questions. Appreciate your interest. And what are you doing, Chris? Clicking the wrong window, Bonte. <laughs> Thank you, Chris, for your help. Thank you to all of our volunteers who make this possible. Wish all of us, may we all find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Have a good night, everyone.